I'm Ed Nersessian, director of the center. Welcome to uh, this meeting on uh, uh, cancer and uh, body and mind. Uh, before I introduce the participants, I'd like to tell you a few things about future programming. Uh, on October 25th, we have Span of Infinity. On uh, November 15th, Complexity and Emergence. On no November 22nd, we are going to show the movie Particle Fever, and after that, we are going to have a round table. And on December 6th, we are going to have a program called French Surrealist Poetry, a sampler that Anne-Marie Levine has organized. And on December 13th, we will have Search for Immortality. Uh, today's uh, program came about uh, during a conversation I had with Andrea Califano, uh, where he was telling me that cancer is always in your body, and he can correct me if I'm saying it wrong, because we had a few glasses of wine and I may not remember things right. But uh, essentially that cancer is in your body and what makes the difference, or one of the things that makes the difference is your immune system. And that one of the factors that affects the immune system is stress, and one of the things that can be stressful is being depressed. So that's what gave us the idea of uh, discussing the latest uh, findings on cancer, but then also talking about the role of the mind in some uh, effects on the immune system. Uh, so today's participants are Andrea Califano, who has been here before and who is the Clyde and Helen Wu Professor of Chemical and Systems Biology at Columbia in the Departments of Biochemistry and Molecular Biophysics and of Biomedical Informatics. He is currently the founding director and chair of the Columbia Initiative for Systems Biology. He also serves as associate director of bioinformatics in the Herbert Irving Comprehensive Cancer Center. I'm not going to read everything, but uh, just to give you an idea. Uh, the, uh, next to him is Selina Chen Kiang, who is professor of pathology and professor of immunology and microbial pathogenesis at Weill Cornell. Uh, her focus is to convert conceptual breakthroughs, breakthroughs into novel cancer therapies, she pioneered the concept that controlling the cell cycle in cancer cells can reprogram them for a killing by a partner agent. She has implemented this novel strategy in several hypothesis-driven clinical trials of combination therapy in human cancers, such as lymphoma. Uh, Susan Lotgendorf is professor at the Department of Psychology, Obstetrics and Gynecology and Urology and member of the Holden Comprehensive Cancer Center at the University of Iowa. Her current work funded by the National Cancer Institute examines how factors such as stress, depression, social support are linked to biological processes involved in angiogenesis, inflammation, and recurrence in uh, ovarian cancer patients. And uh, Hans Guido Wendel is the principal investigator at the Cancer Genetics Laboratory at Memorial Sloan Kettering. 
uh, he works to identify new cancer therapies based on the genetic origins of the disease. He comes from Germany and uh, trained in medicine in Aachen and then was at Edinburgh and is currently associate member of the Sloan Kettering Institute. So that's it and uh, you can start. So uh, just going back to our discussion, um, I think it was prompted by the fact that over the last uh, three, four years, there has been a tremendous trans transformation of the cancer field due to an increased success of immunotherapy-based approaches. And you know, it started a long time ago with some of the work that Rosenfeld has done. But more recently, Carl June and many others have started to really harness how we can remove the veil that hides the cancer from the immune system and therefore uh, have success in some cases where um, from a point of view of either surgery or conventional uh, chemotherapy or even targeted therapy, there was really no hope left. Um, and just a couple of weeks ago, a new drug called Pembro has been uh, approved by the FDA uh, on an accelerated path. Um, and this drug essentially re establishes uh, immune function in the context of cancer uh, and has been tremendously successful, for instance, in melanomas uh, and now has been also tested on gastric cancers that are positive for the ligand of this particular protein called PD-L1. Um, so, so based on, on, on these uh, unexpected and may, maybe, maybe long expected but not yet delivered suddenly becoming available successes, um, we, we thought that maybe there was going to be an increasing focus on the immune system, even in terms of how immunosuppression contributes in some ways to uh, the development and progression of cancer. Um, and certainly, uh, there are now even concepts at the NCI that are focusing around the notion of stress and how stress can potentially be one of the triggers. Uh, and, and when we were saying that we have cancer every day, what we mean is that we have, you know, so billion cells in our body and uh, uh, the probability that one of those cells has mutations that would make it tumorigenic are very high and so something has to be taken care of that on a continuous basis and uh, that's what our immune system does. It basically immediately targets any kind of lesions. There are also other mechanisms that are built in the cell, like senescence and it's called apoptosis, but the immune system does a great job of getting rid of initial uh, uh, sort of starts um, of, of these uh, disease. Um, so that, that was the context in which this discussion came out, and I think uh, um, it would be great to hear, for instance, from Susan, whether uh, there have been more, uh, sort of the molecular level, connection between stress and uh, anxiety and, and cancer. Okay, so um, in, in the work that we do, um, we, we look at two areas related to cancer, cancer initiation and cancer progression. And initiation is the development of cancer in people who don't have cancer already. And progression is once people have cancer, does the question is does stress help cancer progress? So. So looking at the initiation side, there's, 
there, the evidence is really pretty equivocal. People think that stress can cause cancer. It's out there in the popular literature. I've had people come up to me in the clinic and say, my sister says I'm such a positive person. I don't understand why I've, I've got cancer. You know? And, and so, so the role of what stress can do is limited um, it, because it, it's interacting with biology. One of the things we know in the field of psychoneuroimmunology is that there is a very, um, there's a very well-characterized relationship between stress and the immune system. And it seems to affect both the cellular immune system and the humoral immune system. Um, acute stress tends to stimulate the immune system. And it's really chronic stress that we think about in the context of cancer. So what's chronic stress? It's um, people have looked at it in terms of chronic loneliness, caretaking, um, medical students studying for boards. Nobody's looked at people studying for grant, uh, people preparing grants, but you probably that's, get that's that. That's acute stress. Uh, you, well, <laughs> Unless you're doing grant well, after grant that's, after grant. In fact, um, today, what? preparing grant is chronic stress. Right, it's because it's one stress. after the other. Um, but, but chronic stress, particularly where the person has a feeling of helplessness, or this is going to go on and on, um, can affect the immune system because on B cells, on T cells, on MK cells, on macrophages, there are beta adrenergic receptors, there are glucocorticoid receptors, and those basically change the functioning of those cells. So what, what we've seen in the context of cancer is people started looking in the area of do, um, in people who have cancer, it are, is natural killer cell functioning depressed? Is macrophage functioning changed? Is T cell functioning changed? And basically, there's good evidence that in people with chronic stress, in people with depression, in people with, who are lonely, that various aspects of cellular immune function is downregulated in people who have cancer. Um, and that's where we started out in, in our research. And, and we, people had looked basically at peripheral blood. And we asked the question, what about in the tumor itself? And we found that indeed, not only in circulating blood, but in the area of the tumor, there was depression of natural killer cell activity. Then we started looking more directly and saying, well, if there is an effect on host cells, on immune cells, which are supposed to be um, doing surveillance against tumor cells or attacking tumor cells. Would we see direct effects of stress on tumor cells? And that started a, a line of research, which I've been involved in with um, a colleague, Neil Sood, from MD Anderson, and supported by the National Cancer Institute, looking at direct effects on tumor cells. And so what we see is that in, in correlational studies and clinical studies that patients with either 
higher levels of loneliness or higher levels of tumor norepinephrine, which is a stress hormone, have higher, um, higher rates of angiogenesis. They have, their tumor cells are more aggressive, they're more invasive, they're less likely to die when they're circulating through the body. So there seem to be all these relationships. Um, and conversely, with people who are more positive, um, who have a more, um, an outlook on life that is looking more for benefits rather than fear-based, they tend to have a stronger immune system and less of these effects. So that's sort of the overall picture that we're seeing that, that stress or negative psychosocial functioning not only can make the tumor more aggressive, but also depletes the body's resistance against the tumor. Can I, can I ask you one thing because I want, this is very interesting. You talk about a direct effect on the cancer cell, but is it mediated by the immune system or you think that it's actually immune system independent? So if you did this in a, in a nude mouse with that no immune system, would you still see an effect of stress directly on the tumor cells? You do. You do, okay. Um, and so, so I'll give you some thoughts on mediation. So, so if you're looking at how does stress affect tumor cells, you, you have direct effects through beta adrenergic receptors on tumor cells um, and through nerves that are innervating the, the tumor mass itself. You also have indirect effects, for example, through the macrophages that so that stress can. So, so should we put cancer patients on beta blockers? Well, there's, there's been a lot of um, interest in that, and there have been some pilot studies okay. looking at that. Because does in, it make a difference? Does, pardon? It, does it make a difference? Does it, there I'm have, not aware of the study. There, there have been both positive and negative findings. It seems to depend on the cancer, and it, it seems to depend um, on, uh, on the particular receptors on the cancer. But there have been some, there was a meta-analysis done recently and there have been some pretty successful um, studies of, and, and at this point most of the studies are retrospective. There hasn't been a really solid multi-center clinical trial looking at putting patients but on beta blockers. You, I think that in terms of stress, mm -hmm. the two areas are probably quite important. One is the cytokines. Mm -hmm. These are the small molecule. And often stress at the molecular level, some of it is understood, is induced inflammatory cytokines. Right. And that has a huge consequence in terms of every cell in the immune system, how they receive the cytokine and how in turn generate cytokines. Right. I think this is a loop that's extremely important. And one of the consequences about this loop is there are two things. One of this loop is increasing cell number by cell division. Mm -hmm. So you cannot have cancer unless the cell division is misregulated. You need to have, the, one of the basis for cancer is the cells are not controlled as programmed and stop dividing. They keep on dividing, that's one thing. The other is, is as if a train 
fail to get to the station. They stop somewhere in the middle. Mm -hmm. And that's lack of differentiation. But even that, we won't have cancer. The other part is the cells fail to die. So you yeah. need all these mm -hmm. parts. And actually, all these are very much affected by cytokines. Yes. Yeah, because actually, in the immune system, T cells, B cells, all these cells that Susan yes. talked about are cells in the immune system. NK represent natural killer cells. B cells are the cells that make antibody. And T cells, there are two kinds. One is a T cell that help B cell to mm -hmm. make antibody. The other is the kind of T cell that itself can kill cells. And the macrophage is the powerhouse of making inflammatory cytokines. So I think that is actually, and that's both systemic as well as in a tumor. Mm -hmm. And a lot of tumor cells are not supposed to make these things, but because they become tumor cells, they themselves make them. I think that's the issue, mm -hmm. right? I think and that's the issue. There's and probably more here though, right? So at the moment, we, we're sort of discussing how does your psychology affect your immune system? And we all know that, right? You're stressed and your herpes flares up. Mm -hmm. I mean, obviously, mm -hmm. there, there is a, there's a connection here. You can probably turn it around as well, and you can, you can say, well, people have different abilities to deal with stress, have different abilities to deal with the stress of a cancer diagnosis, cancer treatment, cancer, going to the hospital, back and forth, and so on. So. And that may affect, well, it may affect the outcome. It may affect the way they can handle it. I'm talking about something that I have no clue of, because I'm not a psychologist. <laughs> um, but I, I, I would imagine for patients who are diagnosed who have cancer, um, their, their own ability to deal with the, the stress, the, the, you know, the, the having friends, having their network, having whatever helps you to deal with, or your own predisposition to deal with stress affects um, the way that the, the cancer in turn affects them. I don't know if that is measurable in outcome, in survival, and, and so on, but it, it probably is a big factor for, for patients and a big difference. If you look in a hospital, you, you, on any ward with 30, 40 patients, you're going to have a spectrum of people who respond to it by saying, well, you know, it is what it is and I'll deal with it, and you'll have people who respond very differently. Mm -hmm. and, and, you know, so I, I think that we've now discussed the, the sort of how does your psychology affect your immune system and your cytokines and macrophages? But the, the mind and cancer problem, you can probably turn it around and, and it's not that I have anything. One of the things that, of that. that turns out to be consistently really important in terms of coping um, is social support. And one of the things, that, and, and the kind of social support is also really important. So for example, in ovarian cancer patients, which is mostly what I study, we've seen that it's the kind of social support where people feel emotionally connected with people, where they feel like they can talk to somebody, there's somebody at their back, as opposed to there's somebody that can bring them chicken soup, that they can buy money from, borrow money from, et cetera. So it's this emotional connection that we see related to um, survival in ovarian cancer patients. We see it related to tumor norepinephrine, and we see it related to um, actually to gene expression at the time of diagnosis, that, that there are, there, there's really a different signature in people who have high social support versus low social support. 
Um, so am I understanding that what you are talking about, you were talking more about patients, the stress coming from having the cancer, well, having the diagnosis. The resources of dealing with it, right? But uh, yeah. after, after having right. the disease. Yeah. Right. It's two this different is, yeah. topics, and that's what I'm talking about too. So nobody is then talking about, or it's not relevant, the issue of uh, social support, stress, and so on prior to the diagnosis. I think that's where Susan was saying that uh, the waters are much murkier because I think after you get cancer, there's a clear function of the immune system. Uh, and the question is whether, because the, the, the number of cells that a cancer cell is huge once you have once cancer is detectable, it's a huge number. Once you, you know, when you start, and you essentially start to get cancer, uh, the number of cells is so small that potentially even maybe a minimal function of the immune system is already sufficient to keep it in check. So I think that's, that may be what, you know, what, what I see, I'm, I'm, again, also like Guido, I'm not a, a psychiatrist or a psychologist, uh, but I work in basic sciences. And one thing that we see that is very interesting is that in tissues, there is always this balance. You know, essentially, you have processes that compete. Um, a typical process, two processes that compete in, uh, in, in tumors are something called apoptosis, which is programmed cell death and proliferation. And literally, you can, in, in lymphoma, for instance, you know, which is on a field that we have eminent experts here, um, you, it was long thought that there was a process, for instance, by abrogating the function of p53 uh, that you would essentially block apoptosis. But actually, in the LBCL for diffuse lysbacillary lymphoma, there is a significant fair bit of apoptosis going on. It's just that the proliferation is higher than the apoptosis right. and the tumor grows. If you can bring down, either increase apoptosis a little bit or bring down proliferation, then the tumor shrinks. And so it's, it's really a balance between two things. And one thing that we've observed, and this came out from some research re results that we've not even published yet, is that cancer seems to be really divided in two groups. There's a group where proliferation pathways seem to have a really marked uh, sort of signature. And there's a group where immunosuppressive pathways seem to have a significant signature. And the ones that are immunosuppressive are much less proliferative. So for instance, for instance, neuroendocrine tumors, completely non-proliferative tumors, they can be indolent for, for years, uh, but they're totally immunosuppressive. They have, like, they, they eliminate, uh, they mask themselves uh, behind the veil of, of a shroud of secretness, and the immune system cannot detect them. And there's work by Herb Weissman that I think has been really seminal in the area of specific receptors uh, called CD47 that actually are called the don't eat me signal. Basically, they're used by stem cell that still have an immature self uh, image uh, that would otherwise be attacked by the immune system to basically tell your own immune system, don't eat me as I go and do, you know, generate the tissue that I need to go and generate. It turns out that the vast majority of, tu of tumors actually express the CD47 receptor, and Irv has been having some pretty substantial success and is now running some large clinical studies um, with inhibitors of the CD47 receptor just to see whether we can uh, So that's an example where it would be very difficult for your own immune system to play a role because it's really, there's nothing, there's nothing to attack. You know, essentially the tumor is invisible. So it doesn't matter whether your immune system is suppressed or not. This tumor is like, you know, thin air. Uh, but if the tumor becomes visible, where you essentially, for instance, in proliferative tumors where you have less immunosuppression, then it may be possible that what Susan was saying may play a big role. So in fact, I think many people wonder uh, where the nutrition plays a role in cancer, and that's another aspect I think that 
of eating healthily and, and sort of, you know, and also for other reasons of I think the glucose metabolism. Definitely a good reason is that one clearly recognized fact is the metabolism of a tumor cell is very different from a normal cell. And because the tumor cells, you would think that they are more powerful, but actually if you remove these tumor cells and take it out, they die very quickly. They're much more dependent on a certain type of metabolism. So one of the ways now thinking about attacking tumor and spare the normal cells is actually attacking the, the cancer metabolism. We are not there yet, but there's a direction. The reason I want to bring this up again is the fact that all the things that you've mentioned and you mentioned about cell cycle, because we study that, at some point is actually integrated at the metabolism. It's like a real stat, because that's the, the central sort of business wheel of a cell. It gives you energy. It gives you uh, resources to generate membranes so a mother cancer cell can divide into two daughter cells. Without this, the cancer cell will die. And this is a very important thing. And I think what is also important is a way that if, unless a patient is not treated, otherwise when patients treated, often times the dose is too high, the drug. And that high dose itself induces stress. And I think that's the direction that we are actually designing clinical trial, beginning to think about this. Because sometimes the consequence of those high dose is worse than the benefit of it. And one major thing is interfering with metabolism tremendously in a bad way, and the other is induced stress. I think this is a very, I think this, Stress and immune system are not separable. These two things are almost integrated. Yeah. There's another reason actually that's starting to come out just now of why, for instance, using drugs you know, in, 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 in ways that sort of overwhelm maybe negatives that are positives, that drug is essentially a, a pressure on, on the cancer system. And as a pressure, in typical evolutionary system, it promotes essentially survival of certain clones, you know, essentially right. some cells that have specific characteristics, and kills the ones that don't have those characteristics. Right. Sometimes the ones that have the survival characteristics are much worse cells than the ones that get killed. And so you're basically, you're creating an environment where the absolute worst cells that, that, would, be, uh, that, that, that would then give you a very aggressive tumor are now given total empty space to, to, to survive and to proliferate. So what happens very frequently, for instance, is that you see that these tumors are initially shrink uh, you know, significantly after you get a particular treatment, but then the tumor that comes up after that becomes extremely aggressive and actually kills the patient very, very, very rapidly. So these are things that we're just starting to, to understand. Right. In fact, that I think almost invariably anyone who unfortunately got diagnosis the initial treatment always work a little bit, and sometimes work very well. The time that, that it's very difficult and very challenging, sometimes it's hopeless, is a relapse. So I think what we really have to understand is how the progression leads to that relapse. 
and all these factors, whether it's stress, whether it's nutrition, whether it's support, because I think support is not only for cancer. Anyone who has childbirth would like to have support. All these factors are universal. They're not just for cancer alone. It's the entire well-being of an individual. And I think for cancer, I think probably the most important thing is to really understand and everybody's different. I'm sure you know this too. We do genomic sequencing. If you take a normal cell from a cancer patient, we do this all the time. And you ask how many mutations in our normal cells. I bet you will have a million, and I have a million, you have over a million. But you're okay. And what is different is what's the difference between your tumor cells and normal cells. So I think ultimately to really get very deeply we sort of have to recognize the individual. Every person is different. And to really understand that deeper in order to integrate all this information and get to it. Otherwise, we're going around the circle. Because until today, cancer in most cases is not curable because we're going around the circle. And I think it's pretty important. But we have the tools now, right? Yeah, we have a lot of tools, incredible tools. There's also a lot of... Uh, promise because I would say five years ago, we don't have all these targeted agents. We have no ability to deal with small number of cancer cells, but I think we do. We have a lot of systems, biology, everything to help us deal with that. Yeah, I think it's a very interesting point right now because um, I'm actually quite skeptical towards targeted agents that go after a specific oncogene simply because you know, a typical example is BRAF, right? So every but one of our... combination therapy is ultimately needed. Exactly. But, yeah. but also, I think we need to hit... Right now, we're concentrating on the oncogenes. I think we need to find, very much like your work, we have to find the non-oncogenes that, right. that are the Achilles heel of, of the right. tumor. Right. And, the, for instance, a typical example you were mentioning about the fact that we have cells, normal cells, that have all sorts of mutation. Well, the most famous one is BRAF which is a mutation in melanoma. It's basically you know, over 50% of melanomas have this mutation in this gene, in a very specific just point of, uh, of, of, the, of the BRAF uh, uh, protein. Um, but all our nevi have BRAF mutation, and, but they're not tumors. They are <laughs> yeah, just fine. normal cells. So, so clearly, it can't be just BRAF alone. And so when you look at the tumor, the big problem is that every single cell of the tumor is different. Why? Because the very first event that goes wrong in a tumor is called loss of a tumor suppressor, which means that your tumor starts accumulating mutations much faster than your normal cells. And when you do that, you essentially every tumor cell accumulates different mutations. So I think one of the major difficulties, and when you talked about relapse being the major problem, is that what, what drugs do, they hit the part of the tumor they can hit, and whatever is left out that doesn't respond to the drug emerges and no longer sensitive to the drug. So, so I think what we need to figure out, and you know, we actually published a paper two days ago in Cell showing that there are these sort of bottlenecks in, in, in the regulatory system of the tumors where all these mutations that you could try to hit with individual drugs are actually all converging, and they have to go through just a small number of proteins. And we think very strongly that those are the proteins you want to you wanna hit. For instance, in prostate cancer, it doesn't matter which, which genes you have mutated. In order to have the aggressive form of prostate cancer that will actually kill the patient, become androgen independent and become metastatic, you have to have coactivation of two proteins, one called FOXM1 and one called CMPF. If you don't have those two proteins activated, you will not get the aggressive prostate cancer. If you have them activated, you will get prost aggressive prostate cancer. 
So instead of hitting the oncogene upstream, where of which many can be di differently mutated in, in different cancer cells within the same tumor, if you hit those two proteins, you're going to be in a much better, better shape. But I think this is a concept that's just starting to be developed, and it will be a long time before we apply them to if, the clinic. I think if every cancer there is a parallel in this type of understanding, then we can begin to elevate our total understanding. I think that's very necessary. Unfortunately, uh, we do have tools, much better tools than we did before. In the last five years, things really, really move. So that's the hope. I think we, we can say that. Yeah. And so it's very exciting. But the, the part that I do feel is important is anyone who is really under, trying to understand the cancer do have to consider what a normal cell does. Mm -hmm. Because otherwise, we don't have the differential between tumor and normal. I think that's very important. After all, at the end, we are wanting to preserve is the normal and not the cancer. So what do you think? What do I think? Um, yeah, so I, I mean, the topic here is what's the topic? Mind and cancer, right? And and, and my my view of how cancer arises, it, it's uh, it's a population of cells that sit in your bone marrow or wherever in your lung that escape all the normal control mechanisms. So cells that are in your bone marrow and that make blood cells, they're tightly controlled by cytokines and factors in the environment. Their metabolism is controlled. Everything is tightly regulated. And maybe your psychology even affects their ability to do things. And cancer cells lose all of that control. They bypass it step by step. They become independent of growth factors. They survive cell stress that a normal cell can't survive. Their metabolism becomes completely disconnected from any outside stimulus or even the availability of, of nutrients. They, they just become, they become like yeast on a Petri dish. And, and so I think an important point for, for me in the discussion here is the, um, when we discuss how does the mind affect cancer and vice versa, cancers are a sort of population of cells that tries to escape from any outside influence. They become rogue. They, they become terrorists who say, you know, we are out of your reach. Don't, don't talk to us. They escape the immune system by losing genes or proteins the immune system may be able to recognize. They throw them away. So there's a very strong selection for losing any kind of control and becoming rogue cells. And uh, so, you know, they, they escape these control mechanisms, physiological, immunological, maybe psychological, I don't know. Um, and with therapies, I think now our discussion is sort of going to the genes inside the cancer and how we may be able to target them. And I think that reflects the fact that it is, these cancers use these mechanisms to become independent, and we have some tools to, to target and to try to restore some dependence on outside factors. Right? But I thought last night you were saying something where you implied that you were more pessimistic about an outside treatment. No, you, you asked me a very pointed question whether we can eradicate cancer, which is uh, it's sort of it's a question like, can we overcome death? Right? I mean, 
In a way, that's one way you can understand the question. You can ask, can a given patient survive cancer? And we have but great you drugs, can say, can and you can do it. Can we eradicate drugs? cancer? Can we? No. But why do you and compare cancer to that? Why don't we eradicate, for example, smallpox? So you immediately equate, we can't eradicate cancer because we can't eradicate this. Why do you make that connection? Um, we, we cancer is, is part of our biology. It, yeah. It's built in. That's what I was it's, asking it, you to it's, elaborate. It's, yeah, it's, it's built into, into our biology. There is, uh, we, just by breathing oxygen, you are going to accumulate mutations. Oxygen is very toxic, in fact, but you can't live without it. Right? Yeah, we need it. I, I think um, that we... So you, you accumulate these mutations, and they have an advantage. Without accumulating mutations, we would still be single-cell organisms somewhere in, in a little puddle off the coast of who knows where, right? We would not come off the trees. So evolution and, and requires some versatility, some flexibility. There has to be a way that you can mutagenize genes, that you can change things in a germline and by extension also in somatic tissues and so on. Um, so that, that versatility, I think, comes at a, at a price. So whatever is the evolution of a species is also the evolution of cells. And cancer is evolution of cells gone rogue, evolution of cells that decided we don't need the rest of you. I think that, uh, following that point is that uh, to have mutation accumulate, again, you need those mutated cells to divide. Otherwise, you will not increase the population. And for cells in the immune system, they are different from other cells in a way that they have this continuous ability to rearrange their DNA. And as a result, the frequency of making mistakes is a lot higher. So this is obviously is the division and the selection. There is a parallel between uh, selection for the fittest and the cancer, that's for sure. But I just want to point out that in terms of eradicating cancer, correct, we are not anywhere near eradicating all the cancers, but some cancers are cured compared with what it was 20 years ago. That is correct. So I think we have to look at different cancer in different ways. For example, pancreatic cancer is extremely challenging, but childhood leukemia, you can treat it, and the cure rate is very high. So I think we have to look at specific, we cannot draw a... Yeah, I think your question of can we eradicate cancer is, it would be translated into can we eradicate infectious diseases, not can we eradicate smallpox, right, because right. smallpox is just one type of infectious disease. Right. And if you look at testicular cancer, chorionic cancer, basically 100%, right. no, close to 100% right, of patients right, are cured. Right. So you have eradicated those, but it's still, it's just like saying, yeah, smallpox, we have eradicated. Yeah. But Well, but the idea I think that I found uh, very interesting in the way Guido was talking about it was that, as he said it again today, that unlike an infectious disease where there is an outside agent that causes the infection, that the problem with cancer is that it's essentially inherent in your biology. Even in designing therapies. I mean, Selena just talked about yeah, different we, therapies. We all start 
from a fertilized egg. This egg divides no, I understand and specializes, and in the process, every division it gives a possibility to mutate. Sure. And the best cells survive. Usually, those not fit will be eliminated. But there would be times all of a sudden you have a mutation that has a survival advantage, and those are the ones. And also some of the cancer, for example, one cancer called multiple myeloma, it's, a, it's found in the bone, and often the average age of occurrence is very late. But now we understand that there is a period of time, and it's called um, MGUS, means monoclonal a gammopathy of undetermined significance. Why? Because you could actually detect a tiny, tiny bit of something, and that could take 20, 30 years to, to develop. And that's an example. You have something already goes wrong very early on, but there's no general symptom. And I can imagine during that process, 20, 30 years, the nutrition, the stress, the mind, the everything would definitely influence its progression. So I want sure. to take off from there and, and go back to something that you were asking about, Ed, when you were talking about cancer initiation and what do we know about how stress affects cancer initiation. Um, because it takes place during that 20, 30 years right. or whatever. Um, that's one of the reasons why it's so hard to study because you can get 10,000, 20,000 people and you know, a, a small group of them have gotten cancer. But one of the areas that people are starting to study, which you might be interested in as a psychoanalyst, is early, what we call early life adversity, which is you know, going back to how is a person initially set up when they're physiological systems are very mutable in a way. And, <clears throat> and there's been a lot of work looking at um, when, when people have inadequate mothering, when, they have, when they're neglected, when they're abused, the endocrine systems don't develop normally, the immune system doesn't develop normally, and so you get a, a sort of a vulnerability towards later, uh, later insults. Um, one of the things that people have started studying in, in the context of cancer is what happens when you have an early vulnerability like that and then you get stress later in life. And there's a group at Ohio State um, that has looked at people who, with skin cancers and they've looked at the skin lesions of people with early life stress, with, early, with no early life stress, but later life stress, and with both. And the, the lesions of the people who have had both, and so it's sort of like two psychological hits, are, were the most um, aggressive and showed in, in terms of the functioning of the immune cells showed the most vulnerability in the immune cells. So, so that's sort of thinking about early life plus later life, what's happening along that transition. I think this goes back also to this notion that I think we had mentioned before of sort of a, an endogenous versus exogenous nature of cancer. You know, is, is it the cancer, the nature of cancer inside the cell or is it outside the cell? And we know that it's both. In fact, I think the first discovery 
of oncogene has been viral oncogenes. You know, that's where you know, the Nobel Prize was awarded to, to Varmus. And, um, and, the, and the notion that you can actually transfer a gene from the outside environment yeah, into Yeah, but it turns out that viral oncogene is, in fact, something that's been in integrated in your own cells, in your, in your cells. genome. Yeah, but, but if you well, ask about cases. something like smallpox or take HIV or something, none of the HIV proteins exist anywhere else in your cells. You can safely hit them. You can target them. You can block them. You can take a cocktail of inhibitors against every HIV enzyme you can find. It's not going to affect your own cells, at least if the drugs are as good as they should be. With cancer, it's different. I mean, all of us spend most of our time figuring out what's the difference between the cancer and the normal tissue. Is there anything that we can hit in a cancer that's not going to destroy your normal tissue? And that's just really hard. I mean, you end up with a few mutations and a few differences and a few concepts, um, but compared to, you know, smallpox. Yeah, that's where so we're close. So the environmental factors, stress is one, but let's say cigarette smoking. There are those things that are considered to, um, if not cause, certainly contribute to development of cancer. So smoking causes. Causes. Right. Yeah, but, but smoking breaks the DNA inside your own cells, so it actually induces mutation. It, it, but the, the other signal, for instance, if you look at estrogen, estrogen does not in, induce mutations, but it's like putting fuel in, on, on the cell and inducing... Uh, for know, the tumor cell to grow faster and So women who are exposed to estrogen for a longer period of life are much more at risk of breast cancer than women are not. And it's not because of mutations. It's because of... Right. Uh, Again, going back to the fact that it's the controlling of how many divisions, and that is central integrating whether it's a signal coming from estrogen, from your, and we all work on cancer, we all recognize the importance of location, 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 the environment, because environment gives you such, give cancer cells such support. If you cut out the environment, that will be one way to remove the cells. And no matter which signal it comes, at the end of the day, it really centralized in uh, three issues. One is how many cell times is this tumor cell able to divide? And second is after division, would they normally die as they are supposed to, or they lose that control and keep on dividing? A third thing is they move, migration. And that's the cause of metastasis. So it goes from one place to the other to the other. And these are really the three major components. Uh, we all recognize that, but it's very difficult. And if you say controlling that, then how your well-being is definitely a very important control for that. No doubt. Whatever reason that, that leads to the well-being is a good thing. It's actually, the, the environment, I think, is probably the number one <coughs> reason why we, we can't cure cancer as much as we would like right. to. Because right now, the way pharmaceutical companies have gone, in fact, scientists have gone at trying to cure cancer for a long time, is to screen compounds against cells that are taken out of the body and put in a petri dish. And they find a lot of compounds that kill those cells. Unfortunately, when, you, when those cells are in the body, they don't get killed. Or you have, to, you have to achieve toxicity that kills normal cells at the same rate. So, and this is because, in fact, Mina Bissell did some very seminal experiments uh, you know, a couple, about 20 years ago, where she showed that if you take a cell with the exact same mutation and you put them in one part of the body or another part of the body, you generate cancer or not. And so it is completely dependent 
on the signals that the cell gets in addition to the endogenous sort of disruption of the and DNA. everything, right. And that's why most thinking is that cancer cells are tough, they overtake you, but in many ways they are also vulnerable. It depends on the environment. And when you talk about environment, there are multiple factors. You know, I think, wouldn't you say that someone who has a very kind of cheerful personality many times tend to be able to control a lot of things in life and healthier too. I think these, the, this psychology is two-way, it's not one way, isn't it? Well, um, related to that, Andrea asked me a very interesting question last night, which was if will to, how you can measure will to live, and if will to live, be, because anecdotally, physicians report that if patients with strong will to live may, may live longer. Um, and I've been thinking about that um, because we have not found uh, a gene signature, for example, of will to live. It would be very nice. There's, there's actually somebody who has done gene signatures of um, happiness, of, of a happiness that has like a sense of meaning to it versus a happiness of I'm going to go out and drink tonight. And, and those look differently, and they look differently in terms of, for example, inflammatory profiles. And you know, in, inflammation being one of the things that adds fuel to the fire of cancer. Will to live would be very, very nice if we could characterize. And um, maybe that's something that you can do with your systemic uh, looking at things. Um, maybe just to throw out sort of completely as you, you talk about the will to live and the psychology, just a, an idea that, again, I know nothing about, but uh, just a completely different track of thought here. Um, cancer cells affect you in a lot of ways, right? Cancer patients lose weight because these cancers make hormones and cancers change your physiology, right? Um, I don't know if anyone is looking at how does a cancer, cancer cells, how do they affect your mood, your psychology? Do they have a direct measurable biochemical influence on on your mental state, on your will to live with me, if you There's so. actually a whole emerging area of research in, in that area because, and, um, and, and there's an, a number of people around the country who are working on that. Um, if you think of cancer cells in addition to, you know, they, they want to grow, et cetera, they're also like inflammatory factories. Right, that's and they're producing, um, IL-6, they're producing IL-8, IL and all these things, All these neuroendocrine cancers so, that make all these so peptide what, hormones, right? I'm sure so that. what happens when those inflammatory cytokines go through the bloodstream, there, there is a well-characterized syndrome that happens when inflammatory cytokines hit the brain. And if, if you think of how you feel when you have the flu, which is basically inflammation, you know, people don't want to eat, they lay down, they don't want to talk to people. Um, this, uh, it's hard to concentrate, this, this sort of lassitude. And it essentially mimics the vegetative symptoms of depression. Um, this, this sort of 
fatigue and mm -hmm. difficulty concentrating. And so there's, there's an area of research looking at to what extent is the depression that is, um, uh, that may be experienced by cancer patients not only secondary to a person looking at themselves and saying, I have cancer, this is awful, but secondary to this physiologic, what, what's called sickness um, For many cancer, symptoms. but I think that's the main complaint of treatment and of cancer is this feeling of depression and tiredness mm -hmm. and whatever. Well, and let's forget that cachexia, for instance, which is basically your loss of body mass and is one of the fundamental reasons why a cancer patient dies. So if you can actually if you're depressed and you don't want to eat, that's the worst possible thing you can do to your body. And you know, like, so, in some way, the immune system is one aspect of the connection with stress and depression. But the other one is uh, more of the metabolic, you know, and just yeah. keeping your your organism fed to the point that we can survive the disease. So, is there any work on why some people don't get cancer if it's in our system and the cells are mutating all the time and? It's an ongoing process. So why the why is it that some people get it and some yeah, people don't? Yeah, this is a, actually some really interesting study right now. For instance, the, the, there are several labs that are studying why some very heavy smokers don't, don't get, get cancer, um, and there are very likely some highly protective genes that help you fight cancer. Uh, I can engineer a mouse in the lab that's not going to get cancer. You can what? I can engineer a mouse in the lab that will not get cancer. Put an extra copy of P10 or P53 in it. They will be perfect. It's a, it's a major cancer of a tumor suppressor gene. It's called P53. Um, it, it's one of the major roadblocks that gets mutated in almost every cancer. We have two copies of it. If you make an animal with three copies, they're perfectly happy. They won't get cancer. Evolution didn't give us the third copy. Didn't so think it was necessary. If you gave the third copy to a human. That How are you going to do it? A I lot mean, of things. You, you, you where where will you do it? <laughs> well, how soon do you do it? Where do you do it? In the zygote? Yeah. You engineer, right? I mean, there's a whole physical issues. You're opening no. a big box here, right? Your and, um, immune system will not work, actually. Yeah. In a lab animal, you can do it. and You, you can get germinal cells. You can do it. <laughs> Yeah, it's published. Yeah. The the but but I think the downside the, the cancer. Well, okay, it would not develop those cancer you have tested. There might be others we don't know yet. And also, P53 does many many things. I certainly would not want a third copy for myself. I wouldn't. I'm not advertising it, but I'm saying people, people have, have made and they have engineered these, these well, mice and they are protected from cancer. And are there people that have a third copy of PPTG? I don't think so. No. I, mean, I mean, there is the opposite. There are families that have mutated one of those genes. It's called Lee-Fraumeni syndrome, and they are at very high risk of cancer. Right? So, well, there's another, uh, there are two famous genes called tumor suppressor gene. The other is called RB. And that was discovered when children had retinoblastoma. They, every single one of them lose this gene. And now we know. The difference, I think, is different from P53 in the sense that 
we have studied this for many years and follow the patient. And what we found was both genes, at the beginning of the cancer, you lose one copy or perhaps have mutation. And during relapse, the P53 is always mutated or lost and not functioning. But RB somehow often is preserved at least one of the copy. There are times both copy loss. So that means that perhaps even that gene that is a tumor suppressor gene, that actually a cancer cell still needed to develop the cancer. So things are not completely black and white. It really depends on the context. So as you do more studies of people's genetic makeup, are you, you think, going to be able to detect what is causing some people to develop cancer and some people? No, no, just no we don't. Just we, we now know, at least in our study, in one case, we know exactly in one type of lymphoma treated with a very recent accelerated FDA-approved drug, what is causing the relapse that we know because we follow the patient before treatment, after treatment, and until it's relapsed and ask what happened. Then we put, take that gene away from the no, normal, not the normal uh, tumor cell, and this tumor no longer responds to the drug and everything. So that can be done. As far as what differentiate initiation, I don't think anybody has an answer. No, but also I think you're asking a very important question because I think this is right now, in my opinion, a little bit the failure of the current way of, of thinking about cancer. Um, if you go in databases, right now there are thousands of cancer patients that have been sequenced, so we actually know the mutation that you have across 20, 25 types of cancer, even more. Um, we know also, because of work, work that Bert Vogelstein did, you know, about a couple of decades back, that cancer is not a single hit, with very few exceptions, and even those are probably also not single hit, but you know you need six, seven, eight different mutations to accumulate before you actually get cancer. If you go in those databases and you look for the genes that we know today, uh, there's only maybe 20 or 30% of the patients that have more than one mutation among those 100 genes. The remaining ones either have just one hit or they have nothing, which means that where are the six or seven other hits? Um, they, they are mutations that are probably what we call private mutations, that is, mutation in genes that are somewhere upstream of the genes that induce cancer, uh, but you can't find them because you don't find two patients that have the same exact pattern mutation. So if you, if you do a very simple math, um, you will find that there are more cancer genotypes, that is, more, more possible ways in which you could get cancer, than there are cells on the planet. And so what we're seeing right now in patients is just a very, very small sample of the, all the possible ways in which you could get cancer, which means that you can't just use statistics to figure out how it works, because you're not gonna be able to find enough patients that have that particular group of three mutations or four mutations that give you cancer with that particular response to a drug, for instance. And so the only way to do it, you know, we, at least that's what we're advocating, is you have to understand how cancer works. That is how cancer literally works as a microprocessor that has had some uh, pieces disconnected or rewired, and now you have to figure out why it's working in the wrong way. I think that going after individual mutation is gonna be a long way coming before you can get the, the full it's repertoire. it's very dynamic, yeah. Yeah. very, very dynamic. Yes. Of 
course, there are cancers that are easier than others, and, and actually, hematological malignancies are a particularly good class of cancer to study because they tend to have fewer mutations than the other. But if you take, if you take a melanoma compared to a, a childhood leukemia, it's like having your DNA put through a blender in melanoma versus having your DNA with a couple of hits here and there. And that, that is where we can understand sort of leukemia and we treat them much better than we can treat right now melanoma. Well, so well that part of the reason is that uh, for the cancer in the blood, you are in a position to define which state and its normal counterpart because you can take the cells. For other type of cancer like ovarian or breast, it's called solid tumor. It's you take the tumor, it's not every cell in that mass is a cancer cell. You have no more cells, you have everything. And they talk to each other and it's very difficult to entangle that. But if you take leukemia, you could just take study pure leukemic cells. And then you also have by the signature you also know what the normal cell, that's the normal counterpart, and what the normal cell does. So that helps you understand something. But some of the things we learned in the blood cancer is applicable to solid, but not everything. Right. Yeah, not everything. Again, it gets to the point of location and environment, because they are not the same. So if you sequence genes of uh 50,000 people who reached the age of, 80, age of 80 with no cancer and compared it to people who have had cancer, you wouldn't be able to... It would be difficult because, as I said, that we take our... The normal, normal cells we often get from patients from the cheek swab, okay? <clears throat> so you take mine, take Andrea's, take Guido, take Susan, take yours. I bet our mutations are not the same normal. So it's a very difficult one. I, but I, I do sometimes think about what you are saying. I mean, they were, there are people who live to over 100, and they have no cancer. What if we look at them, their genes? What so would it happen? Be that hard these well, days, yes, would it? yes. It, what, it, what it's very happen? difficult because, for instance, you know, people have actually done these studies for what we call complex uh, diseases like uh, diabetes, obesity, you know, all the, all the major ones, and, uh, you know, even autism. Um, and what they find is that when you look at each individual gene in isolation, you find thousands of genes, each one with a tiny, tiny, tiny contribution. And so it is impossible to put together the actual pattern because if you have something that says, oh, if you have this gene, uh, alter you know, it's not alteration, but it's a germline variant. If you have this variant, um, you will live longer, but you're ability to live longer is, the probability that you live longer is 1.2% more than somebody who doesn't have it. What do you do with that? You know, it's just really not an actionable number. Right, but that's the tail end of the curve, right? So at the other end, you talk about GWAS studies, basically, right? At the other and end of the... Or, or, right, or, or, there is no... At the other end of the spectrum, that. you do have things like BRCA, BRCA mutations it, in breast cancer. Yeah. You have it. It has a consequence. You need a surgeon. I mean, you really need to have a discussion. Absolutely. Right? So there is this curve of things that are really important, and it goes all the way down. Yeah, but and the more you look, the more things. you'll find things, of course, that are, you know, really, do we need to do something about this? No, we're talking about two different things. So for risk of cancer, absolutely agree with you. You know, BRCA1, BRCA2, et cetera. What he's talking about is protective 
alleles. Protective alleles, I don't know there's any protective allele that has been discovered so far with eye penetrance. Uh, and, and as I said, in, like in, in more in complex diseases, so breaking, breaking the vase, it's, it's easy. Uh, fixing it's a lot harder, and you, it's much more polygenic. Uh, so you need the contribution of many, many different genes, and that's where you get into this situation where you may have of the 100 patients that, that defeat cancers, they may do it in 100 different ways. But well, it's, it's thinking, just the flip side of the same question, right? If you can define the risk alleles, then the absence of the risk is the protection. Right? Yeah, but protective alleles are much harder to find than Right, than because you can't design that study. You no, cannot right. have a population of 100,000 people who will not get cancer. Right? I mean, it's hard to, to design Barzilla, that study. It's easy to design a study where you say, here yeah, I have 5,000 patients with breast cancer and 5,000 patients who don't have it, and I can compare them. We're actually going at that kind of question, but from a different sort of angle. I'm part of a, a consortium development project that's looking at long-term ovarian cancer survivors. So these are stage three and four ovarian cancer patients who you know, may have a, a predicted lifespan of like three and four years. And these are people who have lived past 10 years. And we're looking at the, their molecular um, Fun, uh, the, we're looking at the tumors molecularly, and we're also looking at their psychological factors. And we're, we're interviewing them about what do you think your, has led to your long-term survival, and we're also looking at what's mutated, what's not mutated, et cetera. So I don't have results for you yet, but that's a potential approach to look at who, who survives that you wouldn't expect to. But for the interview part, what have you found? We, don't, we haven't looked at them yet. I see. We're just collecting data on it. You're okay. looking at their immune system? No, we're looking at uh, their tumors. Yeah. We're not, at this point, we're not looking at their immune system. But, but, but also, I think, I think that this kind of studies have not been done, maybe in cancer with the, with the right controls, but they have been done, for instance, in cardiomyopathies and another type of, you know, in, in diabetes, they've looked at huge populations, 30,000 individuals, you know, and, and f that have profiled using SNP chips. Um, and I think traditionally it's been much harder to find anything protective than to find something deleterious. Deleterious alleles, they're few, but they're a little bit easier to find. Protective alleles, I think, is a much more complicated story. I think it's the same thing with stress. You can point at stress and you can say that that's bad, you know, psychologically, and what's the biology of stress, but it's harder to define the biology of what's good. What's good. I wanted to point to another aspect of cancer in mind, which we haven't touched upon, which I think is very important, which is that to, to defeat cancer, or you say, um, what, what, what was the word that you used before? Just uh, eradicate. Eradicate cancer. Well, eradicate cancer. Word, but I may have used it you, last you, time. You, 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 you need great scientific minds, and you need, and, and I think that this is a major threat right now uh, because right at the time where uh, biologists has come uh, has been empowered by extraordinary tools, uh, both in terms of availability of small molecules, but also in terms of the ability to now literally look at every single molecular aspect of a cell um, or image of a cell, um, we, are, we are seeing a dramatic decrease in inflation on, on, on the ability to do science. And I think this has been a 
dramatic uh, setback uh, that I think should be brought out more uh, often and more, more forcefully to the public attention because we are close to make some real amazing breakthroughs. And in fact, just to give you a, an example of what's happening, um, until th three years ago, or two years ago actually, uh, the number of approved, FDA approved cancer drugs had declined steadily over the years. And then the last two years have seen a dramatic increase in the number of, of therapeutic agents that have been approved. Um, that's an indication, in my opinion, that something is starting to work. Uh, and it's starting to work in a very major way. And I think this is to a large extent due to the fact that we now are empowered by the tools of, not, of biotechnology that we didn't have before. Um, it is, to me, uh, dramatic and uh, overbearing that right at the time where you have these technologies that can, and, and we have now figured out cancer a little bit as a, uh, as a, as a mechanistic story, uh, that we don't, you know, essentially we see a decrease in the number of students, postdocs, and, and faculties that we can it's actually put to work. Because of the decrease in resources. Resources, <coughs> yeah. yes. And, and actually this is a, a kind of sad because it's at a time we're embarrassed by too many riches. We have the tool, we have the reagent, and we need the mind to integrate all this information. And that's, we need resources. And, and it's not very just in cancer, it's, it's everything. And disease. it's actually kind of discouraging to the next generation because they see the future is so kind of not promising. What is the reason Leak. you... Leak. I, I told you yesterday, when, I, when Leak, I teach my introductory is. class at Columbia, <laughs> what I tell my students is you should, be, you should continue in this direction only if this is the only thing you can do. If there's any other thing you can do, go do <laughs> Don't it. Don't do it. Go I, do I it say because, the same thing. Yeah, because I it's, say the it's same just, thing. Because I think to do what you do is not a job. It's a passion. Yeah. Unless you have it, you're not going to be able to contribute or so do you have less people with more passion? Give an example. The typical, the average, the average lifespan of a postdoc today, before they could get six, you know, years. Is six to seven, six eight years. years. Okay? That's insane because those are the most productive year of a scientist right after their PhD. So it used to be that people were getting hired even out and of the become, PhD. Yeah, right? yeah you know, we were at the time when we were postdocs. Three years later, you become assistant professor. Now, postdoc is standard, yeah. and that's six years. And they struggle, and, and they're discouraged from continuing. Position. And, and it's, it's the most really productive lack of time. funding in the sciences yes, that we're the losing a generation yeah, of We definitely scientists. are, we definitely are. And I that's think. very unfortunate because it is not an entertainment of your intellectual need. It's actually a time that things can really get integrated to really make a difference. So is it based on federal funding? Is that yeah. the issue? Or? Right, well, it's a, it's a domino effect because the federal funding is the biggest funding agency. So the federal funding drops, then there are smaller foundations. It's then it's a ripple effect. Then everybody goes to those foundations, and all of a sudden, those foundations, and also the donate, those foundations depend on donation, and donation is not as robust as it was before. Because I'm on a board on a couple of them, I know that. It's a very difficult time. <clears throat> very difficult time. Are you pessimistic too? No, no, I agree. I, you know, more money is always better than less money, right? There is, there's another side to it. I think there's an interesting article in Lancet or something, maybe last year or so, about uh, waste 
waste in research. In, in research. Um, I, I read it and I thought there's a truth to this. And, and part of it is the nature of it. You don't know where you're going, so of course you get lost and you take the, the wrong direction. And you know it, it's easier when you have a direct threat and it's probably less wasteful. So that's the nature of our, our what we do, right? I mean, it's it's but not think, predictable, so you you yeah, going to be. Yeah, I think it's, it's, it's there is a, there is also a lot of a lot of waste in the system which you, you look at and you go well, to it, some I, of these meetings and you look at what's yeah, happening there. Yeah, I think it's I think it's a vicious cycle because I remember <laughs> <laughs> I remember when I was a graduate student, a postdoc, you have certain liberty to exercise your creativity. And you don't have to justify what you do tomorrow. But now the pressure is so high that everyone is under the pressure. You need to produce, you need to produce. That's yeah. part of the reason that things become. It makes become, people be very conservative yeah, in repeating practical. things that we all know practical. over and over, and that's actually, taking tiny little steps. Right. And um, I think that's. And it, often you just look at it and you think, really, did we, well, did we need to do that experiment again? It, it, it really um, is mm. not... Or paradigm shifts. Well, yeah, it, it is well, it's risky. You will not get money right. from the NIH for something risky, right? No. Or innovative. Paradigm shifting. No, I mean... No. The, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, as we said yesterday, there are two types of experiments that you do for a grant, the ones that you've already done and the ones that you will never do, right? So. <laughs> <laughs> All right, we'll stop here and open up for questions. Can I ask a question? Please go to the microphone. Test, test. questions. One of them is sort of science fiction and the other is a little more addressed to the idea of cancer and the mind. The science fiction one arises from what you said about the P53 gene. Why can't we have them? Why, why when the baby is born or when the woman is I mean, can you get, that's the science fiction one. Can I buy one somewhere? <laughs> Seriously, okay. I mean, okay. is there any... Okay, I think being a scientist, you get more and more humbled and modest every day because we know so little about how nature designed us. So P53 is a gene, if you lose it, if you consider a cell has to go around the clock to divide, P53 kind of the gatekeeper at two points. And it kind of sense if the cell should go on or not go on. Okay, this is a tumor suppressor gene. But it does many other things as well. You can imagine if you have more than two copies, three copies, what if your cell just won't be able to move? You're in trouble. You probably would never. But there's one function actually that is very important, which is the way you develop immunity, right? Is because your cells, when they see the, 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 the antigen in the, in the virus. They divide. They, no, they actually mutate their own DNA. Okay? Right. And to do that, you have to suppress the activity of P53, because otherwise right. the P53 would kill the cell. The moment it sees the mutation. So basically, if you now have three copies of P53, 
as soon as you're trying to develop the signature you for the virus, the cell dies. So you would have probably I'm making an inducible one. I, I, I put an inducible, you know, <laughs> P53. Inducible. Okay. That's you, can, another... you can make genes in such a way that they're not active, and then you give a drug like tetracycline, and it switches the gene on. You can do this in animals, and you, you would put a gene that kills cancer cells in there that has selectivity. That sounds good. You activate it, and you leave it on for 24 hours, or 48 hours, or two Kill weeks, two whatever you want. And yeah, Gee, you, I don't know. It's sounding it's better It's not that science fiction, but certainly it doesn't really apply to, well, so it doesn't apply to human medicine Rats. in the broad sense. It does, maybe with some exceptions. So some exceptions, for example, are stem cell therapies. Um, like we can make stem cells from scratch and we can make tissues from these stem cells. And for example, if you're a diabetic, we can make from those stem cells insulin-producing cells. There's a risk that these cells at some point give rise to a cancer. Now, while we make these cells, we can put genes like that in there. We can engineer these cells to have such a fail-safe mechanism that we can then switch on, right? So that's something that you can, you can in that setting, I do have diabetes, so I'll talk to you afterward. Um, the second question is a little more serious um, and less science fiction, which is I've come to a lot of these and the NYPSI. I've never before, and I could be wrong, I don't know about a, a meeting like this about the sort of mind and the disease. The diabetes is a good example. I don't know if you all have ever had a meeting about diabetes and the mind, yeah. or malaria and the mind, or anything. So why does cancer get one of these <laughs> meetings? What is it about the illness that generates this sort of psychological interest, whereas others don't? Or as far as I know, at least not on East 82nd Street. Thank you. That Susan has to answer this. Well, I should say that there are plenty of people doing research on stress and diabetes, stress and cardiovascular disease, stress and you name the disease. So maybe this is just the first in a long line of uh, <laughs> programs. This was, this was serendipitous because it came out of a, just a, you know, a dinner table conversation that I had with Ed about the, about the immune system increased role in fighting cancer, and so we decided to kind of bring this up. But it may be one of a series. Well, there is, right? Yeah. Well, it's more life-threatening at the moment. More life-threatening. No, I don't think so. I, I don't think that's true. So, but patients react differently if you tell them you have cancer, you have two years to live, or you tell them you have emphysema, you have two years to live. There is a different psychological connotation to cancer than to equally deadly diseases that are not cancer. Well, when I was a medical student, your comment reminds me, one of our professors said, whatever you do, don't say to a patient he has cancer. <laughs> because, <laughs> because that's bad. I think it's so true. That's the reaction most people The disease have. comes with a different yeah. taboo. Uh, first Andrew. of all, an observation and then a question. The observation is, as you may have noticed, science this week has the cover story of humanized mice. Uh, so they can't psychoanalyze the mice yet, but almost everything else is going to be possible to do with these mice. Uh, when I started medical school 64 years ago, they were curing cancer every day. 
just as we do today. Of course, the surgeons can cure cancer now. They cured cancer then. If it was found at a certain stage and could be surgically removed, you were good. And the thing that always surprised me was that, for instance, you could have a lung cancer removed. And my impression was, well, if this was a four-pack-a-year smo day smoker, it, the cancer will recur in the rest of the remaining lung. Interestingly enough, many of these survivors do not develop a second cancer in the same bed that they developed their first one. Now the question is, and Atul Gawande was here this week talking to us about uh, being mortal. Uh, and I know you're not clinicians, but I'm sure you come across friends and people who ask you, in this complex era, when, when metastatic disease is not the death sentence that it was 64 years ago, in this complex environment, when the Times this week had an article about the patients who respond, who are the rare responders, a clinical trial that has a 15% response rate, we used to say, well, that's placebo, whatever. Now we look at the people who are in that 15%, and we see that they are different than the people in the 85% who don't respond. From the clinical point of view, from the you said we're not there yet, and cer that's certainly true. Incidentally, about the R01 grants, the average R01 recipient now is aged 50. 20 years ago, they were aged 38. That's the most depressing thing I'm going to yeah. say this <laughs> afternoon. If you do seven-year postdocs, that's the result. What do, you, what do you say to a patient now who comes in and says, and incidentally, Gawande was at Harvard now, they are beginning to teach medical students and residents how to sit down with a patient and really discuss with the patient where he is and what he wants to do about it, or she. Uh, what do you say to people in this turbulent era when, when different cancers are being addressed in different ways uh, in terms of getting their care because they need it this year? So we just opened up at Columbia a, a protocol uh, for treating 260 patients uh, in a completely different way. These are going to be across six different rare tumors. Um, and we're going to treat each one of them individually, but not based on their genetics, because we know that many of these tumors actually have no genetic lesions that are directly tractable. Um, but really by understanding their vulnerability, what are the entry point, and we use very sophisticated computational models. There's, in fact, an entire basement, uh, one of the largest supercomputers in the United States, just dedicated to solving this problem, and then basically going to a model of the patients that's going to be put in a, in a mouse and just testing what the conclusions from that model are. And we already have some very uh, exciting results that are coming from this type of approach. So I think that this is not to say that in the future we're going to treat each patient on an individual basis, but I think what we're discovering with the exceptional responder uh, uh, initiative where we're discovering with these kind of end of one studies, what we're discovering with this new initiative called basket studies where, you know, instead of studying one drug for one tumor, you study an entire repertoire of drugs, each one with its own biomarker. That what we're discovering is that we need to first deal with tumor heterogeneity and we have to understand what makes tumors different. Once you have that, you know, key uh, to be, be able to interpret the data, then you'll be able to just collect all the different ways in which you treat a subset of tumors in the same way. 
And you know, in the past, we used to think of a tumor, say bladder cancer, fundamentally different from breast cancer. Today, if you actually put together side by side in terms of the actual vulnerabilities, what are their Achilles heels? You know, the, the basal subtype of breast cancer, the basal time of the bladder cancer, and the luminal of, of the two are actually much more similar than a basal breast and a luminal breast. So, um, so I think we're starting to look at cancer very much from a molecular perspective. And even though we may learn just there's only a small number of responders when you go across all the tumors, that ends up being a pretty large number. I've actually been walking around with a source of stress for 10 years now, and I've not been given a good answer, and I hope you can help me. Uh, my son, who's now 12, uh, his lymphatic system didn't form properly, and he developed tumors, but they were not cancerous tumors. And at age one, he had a brain, a brain CAT scan. At age two, he had a chest and neck CAT scan. Again, at age six, he had another chest and neck CAT scan, and I am really worried about the effects of the radiation. Um, he's had a, probably a dozen x-rays in the chest up until now, he's 12, and um, he's athletic. I worry about him getting hurt, needing more x-rays. Uh, one of the tumors was not able to be removed from the center of his neck, so there's a possibility that could grow in the future and he would need an, another CAT scan. So I've been walking around very nervous and paranoid. Is it my paranoia that I have nothing to worry about? Or is there something proactive that can be done before, you know, he turns 20 and then, God forbid, something happens. You're like, oh, you have cancer because I feel like he's had quite a bit of radiation. Um, is there anything that could be done ahead of time? You, you could be checked? You worry about the, the adverse effect of radiation? Yes. Well, there is some concerns about that, but is it, is it proven that uh, all these normal, um, I mean, not normal, these routine scans? I think the radiation of an X-ray at the moment is the same as a flight across the Atlantic. So, right. you know, right. many of us fly back and forth across the Atlantic. And yeah, I think it's about the range. same. Um, so even though he was, he, so it was yeah. So even though I think the advantages of having a scan to have early detection of a lesion far outweighs the potential negative effects. Right. So I think that right now you're doing absolutely the right thing. And, and, and even if something should happen, you should not feel it's your responsibility because you are doing the right thing. Well, that's why I'm stressed. I don't want to just wait and think, what, was there a blood test or a non-radiation body scan that could have been done? You know, because but I've been told I think Andrea just yeah. pointed out the fact that the advantage outweigh the concern. Because then you want to follow whatever that might be developing. And I'm pretty sure it's reassuring if you see nothing is developing, right? Well, After that's what I'm saying. The doctors just say, well, if something hurts, bring them in. But isn't it too late once you feel something and something hurts? Is Do you know the underlying condition? Has there been a genetic testing for what your son has? Yes, he had cystic hygromas, cavernous lymphangiomas. They were tumors inside of his body. But did they find the actual genetics of that? Have you, no, I ever, didn't. No, it, so maybe that's one thing. There, there are several institutions right now and, and the NIH that look at, at diagnosing at the genetic level some of these uh, very rare uh, diseases and they're, in, in some cases, they're, first of all, that lets you know exactly what it is and so you can deal with it better. But, but also in some cases you may even find that there are 
potential approaches that could be taken to either prevent or delay or so I think this is something where you may want to consider one of these uh, sort of you know we know at Columbia we just recruited for instance uh, David Goldstein who's going to head our uh, Institute for uh, for Genomics and he's done some terrific studies at uh, Duke uh, but at their institutes uh, I know Mount Sinai many other places in the uh, in the country do these kind of studies and I think Wendy Chang also look specifically at children with rare uh, potentially genetic disease. Okay. All right. Well, thanks. You know, you, you point out the difference between science and clinical medical care. Because in science, it's perfectly all right to say, I don't know. We haven't done those experiments. We, don't, we haven't studied it. In clinical medicine, when a patient comes in and looks at you, you can't just say, I don't know. That's right. <laughs> That's why I went into science. I know nothing. That's what, what you heard. In other yeah. words, you have to accept the fact that there's still an awful lot we don't know. Mm -hmm. But you also have to recognize that there are people who are interested in pursuing this and who will keep pursuing it. Because otherwise, you will die by Google. <laughs> <laughs> Any other questions? No? OK, thank you.